So today we're going to continue in 1 Thessalonians uh, in chapter 2, 9 through 12, if you'd like to turn there um, and get ready for the message. So today we're going to continue in Paul's defense of his character and ministry, as well as we're going to talk about the kingdom of God. So as you recall, Paul is situated in Corinth. He's around other um, other brothers and he's doing his ministry and he's writing this letter to the church at Thessalonica that he just visited just a few weeks prior. And each place that he has gone, he has faced controversy because he's he's been chased and accused of turning even the world upside down. So Paul has used this entire chapter so far to really defend his own character and ministry as well as his brothers and sisters because the message that he has to bring is so important. He does not want his character and accusations of his character and reputation to tarnish the message that he has. What's one of the first things that people would try to do to invalidate what someone has to say. It's an attack of their character. That goes for any of us. It goes for any of us elders who would teach you, right? Our character has to be such that it lines up with scripture as Danny was talking about with Richard and as we have welcomed Richard into being an elder uh, we had to get to know him. We we wanted to know how he acted, how what was his conduct, how does he conduct his family. All of those things are very important. Because if I left here, got in my truck, went to the bar, and got drunk. Would you guys want to hear anything I had to say on Sundays at all? Right? So my character has to be such that I can convey this message to you with credibility. This message is not about me. So please don't get the wrong prioritizations here. But the, the person, the man of God, the woman of God, has to have the character such that their message would be conveyed and received. So let's continue to look at what Paul says about himself, about his ministry. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. For you recall, brothers and sisters, our labor and hardship it was by working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you that we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly and rightly and plainlessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So if we look at this, um, what was their labor and their hardship? What was their labor and their hardship? Paul has this habit of supporting himself as he goes throughout his missionary journey, he supports himself by an occupation and he helps with tent making wherever he goes. So 
if you if you remember acts is some of acts is happening at the same time um as as we have here in uh first thessalonians so acts 18 1 through 11 after these events paul left athens and went to corinth and he found a jew named Achilla a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they worked together, for they were tent makers by trade. And Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul was with his this couple that had the same profession. They made tents. And so since he was of the same trade, he could fit right in, right? And aid uh, with them as they were displaced as well. So Priscilla and Achilla um, became fast friends with Paul. Now, Paul sometimes took a break from tent making to fully devote himself to preaching and to teaching. So continuing in Acts 18, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am clean. For now, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left the synagogue and went out to the house of a man named uh, Titius, or Titius, sorry, uh, Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, as they listened to Paul, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul by a vision at night, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in the city. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So when Paul is in Corinth writing this letter to the Thessalonians, he has done his pattern of going to the synagogue first, right? To speak to the Jews and proclaim the gospel to them. In this case, he was basically kicked out of the synagogue. He leaves the synagogue. But he stays there a year and six months, 18 months in Corinth for this trip. Um, and he is teaching the word of God. Um, so notice also, I mentioned previously that the Lord himself gave Paul visions and guided him specifically to places that he would go, stay or uh, leave. And this is no different. While he sits in Corinth um, for a year and six months, if the Lord says, no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in the city. <laughs> the Lord is giving him the reassurance that Paul, you can camp out here. You can conduct your ministry because I'm going to be protecting you. So what does it take to have time to sit and write a, a letter or two? It takes this kind of at least being able to temporarily take the time to devote himself to the word. And, to, and while he's staying here 18 months, he's able to do that. So you kind of see his act of labor here. Um, 
So when, <clears throat> when Paul is ministering to people, he lives and works among them. Like us in this local congregation, right? Paul has so many attributes to himself that if he if he would have gone the traditional route of his teaching and instead of being saved by Jesus on, on the way to Damascus, if he would have become a rabbi, Paul would have had all the credentials to stand up in front of a synagogue and be the man of honor, right? He could have... He could have been honored every place that he went as someone who was handpicked by Jesus himself. He could have sported his Roman citizenship. He could have talked about his lineage being from the tribe of Benjamin and all of the other credentials that he later names in the New Testament. But instead, Paul is present tent making while he's ministering to the people on his mission. And I really think that says something about the character of Paul. As this is part of his defense, uh, I would picture Paul in the modern day being somebody that's not scared to pick up a broom around, <laughs> around the church, right? Take the trash out. Um, this is someone who devotes his whole life and just turns himself over to God. He's not one to want to impress with titles or credentials. He lives and works among the people in his ministry. Now, there are later points in which Paul takes up a collection, but it is not for himself, okay? Um, Paul's collection, if you recall this instruction in Corinthians 16, 1 through 3. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of, churches of Galatia, so you are to do as well. On the first day of every week, it is normative in the New Testament to meet just as we're meeting today on the first day of the week. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections need to be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you approve, I will send them with letters to take your gift to Jerusalem. Why to Jerusalem? In Galatians, he says, why Jerusalem? Galatians 2, 9 through 10. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor the very thing I also was eager to do. So James, the overseer of the church at Jerusalem, who we might have heard a little bit about recently, <laughs> um, tells Paul to be concerned about the poor in Jerusalem. Remember in James where all of those uh, references to the rich and the poor and how there was this uh, contention about where the rich would be seated versus the poor and how the rich had all the land and the poor were basically serving them. And there couldn't be these differences with inside, inside of the Jerusalem church and to the letter that James is writing to. So James um, says to Paul, which agrees wholeheartedly with the spirit of Paul, in saying, you need to take this collection um, for the poor. So I just say that as a brief aside to say, Paul is basically a self-supporting missionary, if you will. He is, he's going through his missions 
God is providing the work for him and providing uh, the means of him going through <laughs> being welcomed by these different congregations. Please forgive me for my voice. Uh, this is the strangest cold that I have ever had because it just, there's this little piece that just lingers. It has lingered for weeks. Um, so where do we go from here? Um, but what I am doing, 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15 as a cross-reference. Excuse me. But what I am doing, I will also continue to do so that I may eliminate the opportunity from those who want an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. What I'm getting to with this cross-reference is why is Paul offering this defense? For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Paul has offered this whole section defending himself and others against so many possible accusations. We didn't come to you in deceit, remember last week. We aren't taking advantage of you monetarily. I'm proving that out because I work among you, right? Um, we aren't false apostles. Um, so we've already seen how Paul is persecuted and mobbed everywhere he goes. He goes to Philippi. He gets to spend some time establishing that church, chased away. The, the, many times the Jewish leadership is the one who incites these mobs. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me. In the case, if you remember last week of Lydia, right? He was chased away because he cost uh, Lydia's owners, or excuse me, not Lydia, the woman um, that was doing the divination. He cost them money. So he was incited a riot for that and got chased out. So he needs to differentiate himself from all the other traveling preachers and philosophers who would have different messages and different motives. Remember, this is the ancient world. This is not so long um, where Greece was the empire, right? What did the Greeks and Romans love to do? They loved their philosophy. Right. Remember Paul going to Athens and standing on Mars Hill and talking to them about uh, how he reasoned with them from scriptures amongst all the different philosophers uh, that would have been having a different message about how to live life. So point being, Paul has to make himself credible and has to defend himself as he is as he is sort of gaining fame for going through and being a disruptor of the goings on um, in his world. He continues, "You are witnesses, and so is God." Now, when an apostle would call upon the witness of God, he is serious. He does not take God's name lightly. So he says, you are witnesses, and so is God. Literally, God is my witness of how devoutly and rightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring 
each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. So Paul compares himself to a father with his own children. If you remember previously, he compared himself to a mother who was nursing her children. Paul has an intimate relationship with the, those in the congregation and other Christians. So intimate that he would compare himself to a nursing mother. So intimate that he would compare himself to a father with one of his own children. So how does, what is the biblical picture of what a godly father would look like? What he, what is he referring to? How do fathers treat their children in scripture? In Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, Paul instructs the, the Ephesians, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Sunday school, ring a bell. This is, uh, this is the order we were talking about. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may turn out well for you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Contrast, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't lord over your children. Don't be this tyrant of a father, right? But what do you do? You bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 8 through 10. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not ignore your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful wreath for your head and necklaces for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 10. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. You shall also tie them as a sign to your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead, and you shall also write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Is there any question in seeing that Deuteronomy verse that a father is to live and instruct in the, the word. The word literally, physically surrounds him in Deuteronomy. He is repeating it constantly. It's always on his mind, always on his heart, and always towards his children. Psalm 103.13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those that fear him. So if you think about Paul's intimate relationship and how much he loves the people of God, we talked about how that is an evidence of his salvation a fruit of the spirit is a love for the brothers. Godly fathers are both compassionate and instructive. I hope that you have experienced that type of father in your lifetime. If you haven't, there is the best father 
that could ever be that we call Abba that is always good, that never lies, never fails to keep his promises. And he is both compassionate and instructive. This passage contains both. So Paul doesn't just write a warm, fuzzy letter of encouragement. Not usually ever, right? So, but he does start out that way. He does start out that way. Always warm greeting. Always. I never cease to pray for you. I love you with the love of Christ. Every time he addresses the, the body of Christ. So as fathers and as mothers, we are both compassionate and instructive towards our own children. So Paul comparing himself to their father is something that he is saying out of love, out of, out of his explanation of his relationship with them. What is the end purpose of Paul's instruction and Paul's establishment of the churches of the region? Verse 12 gives that result. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And I said that deliberately because I'm going to break down each one of those phrases, okay? So that you would walk in a manner, the God who calls you and his own kingdom and glory, okay? So that we can fully understand the why of today's passage. Why would Paul give this instruction so if you remember, I talked about the order of salvation. This is called the Ordo Salutis. Not sure why we need to use Latin for all the theological terms, but that's okay. The order of salvation. The first is election. The second is the gospel call, proclaiming the message of the gospel. And we, we then have regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, which is the right conduct of life, perseverance, remaining in Christ, death, going to be with the Lord, and glorification. So the reason I highlighted those two pieces is because the God who calls you, how does, the, how does God call you? And then how do we walk in a manner of that calling? And how do we, um, how are we in his own kingdom and glory? So Romans 8, 29 through 30 is a very clear pattern for this order of salvation, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, he elected, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So clear path, right? So many times when the gospel is presented as, as a decision by itself, without all of this precedent, we're truncating the process of salvation. And I think that's why we have such an error sometimes. We we focus on the effort of a decision as if 
that were ours wholly to make apart from God, right? But who initiates, who initiates salvation? It's him who calls. As an example, Romans 9, 10 through 13. And not only that, but there was also Rebecca when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have I hated. In the womb, determined. Jacob would be his. Okay? Because of him who calls. Emphasis on God's word. Later in the fifth chapter of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be kept complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he will also do it. So, Sometimes this is referred to as an external call and an effective call. So the contrast would be an external call is everyone within the sound of my voice could hear the gospel. I could literally read the verses, a few verses, and share a simple gospel message with you. That would be an external call. Well, what makes that effective? What is an effective calling? Effective calling is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. So good seed and bad seed, right? Some falls into bad soil, some falls into good soil, right? Effective calling are those that God in, enlivens, okay? That he regenerates, that he changes. So if you hear those terms, external call versus effective call, the effective call is when God the Father calls you to be his. And it cannot not be effective, by the way, when the Lord calls you. Acts 16, 14 through 15. A woman named Lydia was listening. She was a seller of purple fabrics from the city of Thyatira, and a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So right in, right in the same vein here, as we're talking about, the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. This did not start at the point of, of, uh, of an invitation from the pulpit, right? This did not start there. This started where the Lord opened her heart. And even before that, what happened? Her election, right? So if we put all of our scripture together, election proceeds um, the calling and this is where Lydia was called effectively. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful of the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So 
I felt it appropriate to share the gospel with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let's go through a quick gospel presentation. So, by the way, memorize these three verses. You can tell them to anybody you want to. Okay? Christians will be edified and encouraged, and perhaps God will use you to proclaim his word to someone who would become a believer. So turn with me. Let's do this. Romans 3.23. What does 3.23 say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. Nobody is blameless. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The penalty for sin is death. So... Now, what have we established? If you have sinned and the penalty for sin is death, you're in trouble. But what happened? What is our deliverance? Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died to take away the penalty of sin for those that are called by the Father into his kingdom. So, congregation, you have received a gospel presentation this morning. I've made an external call, okay? I would love, I would love it to be an effective call. We'll see what God does with it. Okay. But nothing complicated, nothing complicated about the gospel. All people have sinned. The penalty for sin is death. Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. Gospel presentation. So now that we are called and we've established that it is the father who calls us into his kingdom. Our sanctification follows the call of God and his regeneration is even regeneration of our desires. What have we been reading in A.W. Pink? It produces good works. God has also ordained those good works as a result of his calling and his kingship. Here's what we've re been reading um, in the men's Bible study. So, hey, please don't ignore all the, all the different times that we meet together and study together. When Danny stands up and talks about Josiah and uh, about, uh, he, he touched briefly on masculinity this morning, and then we get to the time of preaching and I talk to you about how Paul treats his congregation as if it were he were their father. Um, let's let's think about how all of these things synthesize together and how God is using his word and our studies to all put together messages for us that we need to hear. This isn't you know, we, we don't just cast out our hot breath <laughs> into the air for it to not have any effect. Okay. Uh, God is doing something at word of grace, even. So anywhere that God's word is shared. So anyways, A.W. Pink said, not only must there be an abstinence from the execution of sinful lusts, but there must be a loving and delighting to do the will of God in a cheerful manner, obeying him without repining or grudging against any duty as if it were a grievous yoke to be borne. 
I delight myself in your law. Evangelical sanctification, he defines, is that holiness of heart which causes us to love God supremely so as to yield ourselves wholly up to his constant service in all things and to his disposal of us as our absolute Lord, whether it be for prosperity or adversity, for life or death, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Challenging stuff, right? Challenging stuff. Um, I don't know about you guys, but throughout the course of a week, sometimes it seems like death by a thousand paper cuts. There's always someone after you for your time, competing for your time, having a question, having to have an argument. At least this is my work life, okay? <laughs> I hope yours is I hope yours is better. But it it's always this contention, right? I, I live in a sinful world. You do too. So we're always going to contend with both the sin in here and the sin out there. And um, but what does this sanctification call us to be? In the kingdom of God, as citizens to our king, now we don't just begrudgingly obey him. We delight. We're, we have joy in obeying the Lord because his regeneration produces in us a sanctification that even saves our desires and turns it turns them 180 in a different direction. For by grace, Acts 16, 14 through 15, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So if anyone tries to sell you a gospel that is just fire insurance and doesn't ever talk about your sanctification, holiness, discipleship, following Christ in your daily life, please don't subscribe to it. Because just as God ordained our salvation, God ordained our good works. God ordained our place in his kingdom to do what he has planned for us to do to glorify him. So are you going to be obedient after having been called by scripture to do so? Are we going to be obedient and do these good works that he has ordained for us to do. Now, this last part, and I'm sorry, we're a little bit over today, but I think it's going to be worth it to you. So let's hang out for a moment. So this last part on his own kingdom and his glory, what is his kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? I, I encourage you to do this. This is what, what I attempted to do this week is to go through the New Testament. I just did I just did a simple word search on kingdom of God through the entire New Testament. It's something like 75 or 76 verses, okay? I encourage you to do that. It was a super, it was a big encouragement to me to talk about the kingdom of God and to meditate on it this week as I prepared. First of all, and because of time, of course, I can't go through every 70, 70 plus verses, but the kingdom of God, belief is required to enter the kingdom of God. We must accept Christ to enter into the kingdom of God. 
Christ must be received like a child. It is difficult to enter, and we will go through tribulation as being part of the kingdom. It requires obedience in contrast with habitual sin. The kingdom of God does not have in it those who have habitual sin that they do not turn from. And understanding is required to enter into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is for the poor. It is for the poor in spirit. And it is contrasted with riches and those that love riches. So, and if you would like me to share these slides with you, I'm glad to do that, okay? Because I know this is a lot of verses. But if you can tell, what I tried to do is I read through all the verses and then I began to try and categorize them. So forgive me if I've made the wrong categorizations, but what I want to convey to you is as I look through this, the kingdom of God starts to be defined through scripture. If we can just look at some simple word searches and dig through it ourselves, let's, you know, just look at the scripture. The kingdom of God is now and in the future. The kingdom of God is spoken at as at hand. If you recall some of my earlier comments about Paul and the other apostles, they lived as if Jesus were coming back immediately. Any time. So they had they had a fire about them. They had an urgency about them to do the will of God. Why would Paul turn his whole life upside down? He encountered a real Christ. And he turned him from a murderer. To someone that we would read to be instructed by and encouraged by 2,000 years later. So the kingdom was immediate to Paul, and it is here and yet to come. It cannot be shaken, Hebrews says. And it has promises for now and in the future. Why would we shortchange? ourselves to get saved and just wait for death <laughs> right what what does god require of us now and what what does this kingdom look like for us today sunday january 21st 2024 i think i got all of that right um today like what what's required of us today not just we're not just safe from hell. We're in a kingdom, and that requires citizenship of that kingdom. The kingdom of God um, is preached by Jesus. If you look at those Luke verses that I outlined there, Jesus himself talks about the kingdom of God what it's like and what it isn't. And he gives these parables and tries to tries to explain what I would be to a dense, these dense apostles and disciples that are following him. I'm, I'm one of those two. Explain it to me like I'm an eighth grader, right? Um, understand, understanding is given to his disciples in order to preach about the kingdom. And they were sent out to preach it because of this. So in Acts 1-3, the resurrected Christ is ministering to his apostles. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a church service in which the Lord has been resurrected and comes back to see us and is giving us instruction. How amazing. What, 
how could you even wrap your head around that if you were one of the apostles? So the disciples were sent out to preach the kingdom of God because of encounters like that with Jesus. And lastly, there were a bunch of additional attributes that I did not want to leave out, but that were about the kingdom. So it is superior to all other kingdoms. It's contrasted versus hell. It's contrasted to demons. It's contrasted to flesh and blood, cannot inherit it. The least in the kingdom is better than the best man. It is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's you a good single silver bullet verse if you want to know what the kingdom of God is. It's this present living of peace and complete joy in the Holy Spirit as we walk through our lives. It's not in words, but in power. And we are all fellow workers in this kingdom. So as we wrap up this morning, I want you to, I want you to get this. If you don't get anything else that I've said this morning, we are saved because the father has called us into his kingdom in which he requires us to walk in those works that he also preordained for us to do before we were saved. Paul continues to offer his defense of his ministry, one that endeavors to be blameless among people, which he gives instruction to Timothy and so many others walk blamelessly, right? Paul's example is one of a compassionate but instructive father. As leaders in our church, community, and just as importantly in our homes, we should seek to do the same, to be compassionate but instructive. Paul's mission is to spread the gospel and through it, God calls those that hear into his kingdom. So, Paul has his megaphone going through the ancient world, calling. Paul is being used by the Holy Spirit to call his people into his kingdom. God's kingdom is filled with those who believe and trust in him, seeking to glorify their king in the present and forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you uh, for your word this morning, God. Father, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, you have called us to be citizens. Lord, to presently lay our lives down for each other, for our families. Lord, and to have a sacrificial love because you gave your son as a sacrifice to purchase it. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning and help us to walk more closely with you. Help us to encourage one another and build each other up in your kingdom. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, we thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.